The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we hear about the underground network of Russian volunteers helping Ukrainians flee the Russian Federation. We discuss Dominic Nichols' interview with the Estonian Prime Minister, and I speak to the co-founder of an innovative and unorthodox fundraising effort in aid of the Ukrainian army and other charities, Terror Only Funds. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 6th of June, day 103. And today I'm joined by Dominic Nichols, the Telegraph's defence and security editor, Camilla Turner, chief political correspondent, and Telegraph correspondent James Kilner, who's calling in from Almaty, Kazakhstan. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. Uh, It's been a very busy uh, long weekend uh, or a busy weekend in Ukraine. We've not spoken since... I'm not spoken live since uh, since last Wednesday, so uh, yeah, quite a, quite a bit going on, but in a very localised area, and I mean the Severodonetsk pocket of eastern Ukraine, the, east, the Donbass region. The Russia have been pushing everything they've got really to try and close that pocket, to try and take the city of Severodonetsk and close that pocket around the city, which would be, would give them effectively the whole of the Luhansk Oblast. That's the northern uh, region, the northern oblast that makes up. Uh, the Donbass, the Donetsk, the southern one. So intense fighting there, um, very much artillery heavy. Um, a, a point I made last week that's actually been reiterated over the last few days is there, there are there's actually quite a small number of Russian tank losses and personnel losses, and and what that's being that is indicating either that that Ukraine is running out of ammunition, and as I said last week, I don't think that's the case because otherwise. Russia would be making these great breakouts to the West. It, it may well be, it's likely to be much more indicative that Russia is running out of kit, that it's simply not there. The tanks are not there. We've seen T-62s called up. We think they are running out of kit. But the um, the battle there is 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 one of a very heavy artillery duel. Um, Seven to next, the city itself, there were reports at the end of last week that up to 70%, anywhere between 50 and 70% of the city was in Russian hands. That now seems to be going back down. There have been reports that actually this was a this was a very clever Ukrainian trap to 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 seed ground and to draw Russia into that tough urban fight and then and then hit them. Um, it's far too early to say. Uh, you've got to be careful about these these hot takes from the ground. It would be wonderful if it was some you know great operational um, counterattack born of deception. I don't know if that's the case. I can't sit here hand on heart and say that's that's what's going on. But it looks like Ukraine is pushing Russia out of the city. Still a, a, a sizable minority chunk of that city in, in Russian hands, but it does seem to be going uh, back. And has not been able to close that gap from not been able to push west from Papazna for a couple of weeks now and south from Liman. So very interesting what's happening there in the pocket. Um, just one other thing to uh, well, sorry, there's loads of other things, but I know we've got a busy day today. Um, President Zelensky has visited the area. I mean, he's he's uh, he's gone as far as the the pocket itself. I don't think he's gone into Severodonetsk city, but certainly into the region, certainly within range of Russian artillery in in the area. And I can speak a little bit later about why why that is so significant. Um, the only other thing to, to to note for now is that in the last twenty four hours, it's been announced that uh, that Britain uh, is going to join uh, America in sending multiple launch rocket systems to Ukraine. So these are the big artillery pieces out to about range of about uh, eighty kilometers, fifty miles. They can fire the U.S. versions can fire the Atakams missile, the big sort of two uh, three hundred uh, kilometer um, range. But they are, the ones that are being sent will not have the ATACMS, the Army Tactical Missile System, the ATACMS uh, surface-to-surface missile um, sent as well as part of the, the argument about, well, is it escalatory? Is it too much of a provocation to Russia? Which we can, we can sort of pull apart uh, again a little bit later. But, but um, I know we're short for time. I apologise. Uh, and just finally, I'm going to make some uh, comments later. I've just been in a, an interview with Estonia's uh, Prime Minister, Kajakalas, um, very impressive politician. 
and she is there, you know no 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 qualms about it we need, this is the this is the time for the west and for the world to stand up to to putin um She's saying that escalation, that these ideas of escalation, that sending weapons is escalatory, she says this is a trap um, that Russia have set, setting the narrative have we spoken a bit about before. She's also talking about how now that there's the, the, the time for the West to decide how, how much we, we want this. Um, sanctions are starting to bite in Russia. And she said sanctions will also then start to bite with us. Uh, and we, we need to decide. She said gas might be expensive, but freedom is priceless. And, and some, you know, some very good, very good strategic um, uh, communication from the from the Prime Minister, but but a bit more of that later. Thanks, Dom. And we'll also hear from James Kilmer, who's uh, calling in from Kazakhstan to tell us about some of his reporting in Estonia recently as well. So he'll join the call in a minute. But first, can I turn to uh, Camilla Turner, the chief political correspondent for The Telegraph? Uh, thanks so much, Camilla, for joining us. The reason, the reason we're bringing you on really is um, Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, is in a spot of bother, well, in quite a lot of trouble, really, uh, today. He's been one of the closest allies of President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine. Can you tell our listeners what's happening in the UK? Hi. Um, yes, thanks very much for having me. Um, I, I agree with your um, correction there that a spot of bother is a bit of an understatement for the troubles the Prime Minister is facing today. There's going to be a, a vote of no confidence um, scheduled for this evening from 6 to 8pm. Um, this is the, the long awaited, we've had sort of weeks, months of, you know, will there, won't there be a vote of no confidence? But today's the day that it's all coming to a head. Um, the, the, the threshold of the, the number of uh, letters has been reached. So, so it's all happening happening. And um, today, really, the Prime Minister, um, along with sort of his Conservative Party headquarters and his allies, are going to spend the day frantically trying to shore up support for him um, and trying to convince um, backbench MPs and members of his own government to vote for him, because, of course, the vote is anonymous. So his own cabinet uh, members could be voicing their support on Twitter, could be saying, I'm right behind the Prime Minister, but could then just go and stab him in the back and no one would know. So it's going to be a very frantic day of activity for the Prime Minister, trying to really convince MPs to support him and to um, support him in this vote this evening. And this presumably means that the British response to um, the Ukraine crisis is, is slightly down in the agenda. Is that the sense you get from talking to people in Westminster? Well, it's interesting because I actually think from what we can see so far, some of the key messaging of Boris Johnson's allies as to why it's so important that, that he stays in the job, that he continues with his um, sort of policy agenda. The Ukraine war is actually being used as a key plank of this. Um, so uh, it's... It, there was a sort of a briefing document that's, that's been circulated among MPs with some of the key arguments as to why he needs to stay in power. And the Ukraine war features very heavily in that, saying that, you know, the PM is doing this really important job supporting Ukraine against Russian aggression. And, you know, that, that's sort of the, his main focus. And he needs to be able to continue doing with that. He had a call with Zelensky this morning. That's not uncommon. He speaks to Zelensky quite frequently. Um, but obviously Downing Street have been talking that up quite a lot. Um, it was sort of one of his early social media posts. His, his third post since the, the vote being announced was a picture of himself on the phone to Zelensky. So actually, I think what we're likely to see is the Prime Minister really just doubling down on his support for Zelensky and, um, you know, the role he's playing there, because that's quite a quite a big uh, plank of his argument as to why he should stay in power. He's busy playing this big, important statesman role. Um, and I think what we're likely to see is potentially more announcements, more rhetoric. Um, and as I say, if anything, sort of more support there for Ukraine, because that strengthens his hand domestically. And just looking forward, if, if he was to lose this vote uh, and be forced to resign as prime minister, do you think that would affect the United Kingdom's position and, and actions to do with Ukraine or, or not? I, I think... The first thing to say is, even if he loses this vote, it, it's kind of up to him whether he resigns. And he has said repeatedly that he will not be resigning. He's going to sort of continue fighting. In the long term, it may be that his authority is weakened sufficiently that he's left with no choice but to resign at, at some point in the future or or he's sort of um, somehow forced out if his cabinet members start to turn their backs on him. But I mean, I think I, I don't anticipate a major change of, of British foreign policy, even if uh, Boris Johnson isn't in the driving seat because we've got huge public support for um for ukraine and and a kind of public support um 
against against Russian aggression. You know, other the Conservative Party are fairly united on this. The, the opposition as well. It, it's kind of a broad consensus um, within, within the kind of UK domestic policy that that, that um, we'd be wanting to sort of continue with the uh, with the support for Ukraine. So even if the Prime Minister is ousted, we're unlikely to see a kind of sudden U-turn on on our support for Ukraine. Well, Camilla, thank you so much for joining. I know you've got probably an incredibly busy day ahead, so it's hugely appreciated that you could give us your time. Um, Dom, I know you you said you had some thoughts on this, um, and then we'll bring in James, um, who's who's also called in. Yeah, just very briefly to say that that, uh, that we asked the Prime Minister of of Estonia what the the view might be if if Boris Johnson is ousted, and she, she was pretty relaxed about it to be perfectly honest she said there'd be no different approach she didn't anticipate any any change in direction at all from the british government of whatever shape it is and whatever leadership it's got um if johnson goes so she's not too concerned there it is worth saying that actually she she brought down her government over the weekend on saturday she uh broke the coalition or she kicked out seven she got 15 member cabinet she kicked out seven from the uh from the center party which is a is a, a sort of russia leaning party has been very close to um putin in the past and and um they they fell out over an education bill, but actually it was a, it was a lot of politics coming. So actually, her government is currently in crisis. Um, so so she she was very relaxed about that as well. But in terms of the overall unity of the West uh, at the moment, she was she was fairly relaxed about, about her own politics, and we can talk about that in a bit later. Um, uh, but very very nonplussed about the the machinations here. After she left um, left the interview and I, where I was in the in the embassy, she was heading straight in to see Ben Wallace, defence secretary, and and to meet or was scheduled to meet Boris Johnson. Uh, later today, um, that, that may well that may well have changed um, because of events that are happening. But it'd be strange for a scheduled head of state, um, or sorry, a prime minister visit to be to be derailed by domestic politics. Um, and I'm sure Boris Johnson will want to take the time to get away from it for a bit. So, so he she's expecting to see Johnson later on today. Um, but yeah, she was fairly fairly relaxed about any um, any upsetting the apple cart that his departure might uh, might herald. Thanks very much, Dom. Um, let's bring in uh, James Kilner now. James, thank you so much for joining. I know you wanted to um, speak about some of your own reporting in Estonia. Um, can you t- tell us about that? What did you find? Um, well, thank you for having me. And you can hear me okay? I'm in Kazakhstan, Almaty. So everything's okay on the line? Absolutely. We've got you loud and clear. Okay, great. Um, so I, about 10 days ago, I made my way up to a town on the uh, Estonia-Russia border called Narva. Um, and this has become a major gateway for refugees from Mariupol in southern Ukraine and also Kharkiv, who ended up being rescued in inverted commas by Russian forces and pushed into Russia. Um, and I was sent up there by the Telegraph's foreign desk to speak to them and find out, listen to their story and how they ended up there and their trials and tribulations and difficulties along the way. Um, so I spent about three days, three days there interviewing, I don't know, 25 refugees from, from Ukraine. And I learned, um, Basically, the uh, I learned basically about the Russian network, which has helped them through Russia, and the different filtration camps and sort of uh, checks that the Russians are pushing on them to filter out people that they think might be a problem. People who are linked to the Ukrainian police, the Ukrainian military, this sort of thing. Um, and it was about listening to them and, and their stories. And from them, what really what really stood out to you? I mean, it's it's something I've noticed. We're getting a lot of questions for for the podcast on. Is people asking, can can we say more about the people being sent to Russia and being uh, filtrated through Russia? Um, could you give us more details on, on these camps and the kind of questions uh, be, uh, being asked? Okay, so uh, I'd say about ninety percent of the people I spoke to are from Mariupol, and had spent between a month and two and a half months hiding in basements from 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 the bombing. And by the time they end up in Narva, um, they are shell shocked, and you can see this straight away. They're sort of their eyes are sunken. They look thinner. Uh, their skin is more pallid. They 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 look really quite shocked, and and they're, they're fully traumatized. Um, and between leaving Mariupol 
uh, after leaving Mariupol, they get sent to um, rebel-hold Donetsk region, where there's so-called filtration camps. And in the filtration camps, the Russians separate the men and the women. And it's at this point, these are dirty, poorly run camps, and there's disease, disease-ridden and diarrhea is rife, etc. And at this point, the men are grilled for several hours, interviews, strips. The, the Russian soldiers are looking for tattoos, that sort of thing, which singles them out as being linked to the Ukrainian military. They have to swear an allegiance um, to, to, to Russia, um, and they have to pledge that um, they have had no nothing to do with the Ukrainian military. If they get past that point, and many of the men don't, um, men can be siphoned off in, into prison at that point. If they get past at that point, they get uh, they get sent to something called a temporary accommodation point in Russia proper. So they leave the rebel hell bit of Donetsk and they go into Russia proper, and these are spread around Russia. There's a big one outside a city called Rostov-on-Don, which is in southern Russia, but they could get sent to several places. And it's at this point that the um, semi-underground network of Russian volunteers really kicks in, and they are able to give these refugees SIM cards and a bit of cash. Uh, these temporary accommodation points are gymnasiums, converted gymnasiums, that sort of thing, being... Uh, with mattresses on the floor and families can get together. I mean, they're still only semi-comfortable. But the refugees from Ukraine are actually free to leave these places. They're they're not obligated to stay. And you have to remember, a lot of the people who are living in Ukraine, especially Mariupol and Kharkiv, have very close relations dotted around Russia. Ukraine and Russia have very... You know, it's fully integrated in in sort of familiar ways and, and linguistic, obviously. Um, so many can peel off and, and try and stay with relatives. Some others uh, had you know get fully linked in with this network of semi underground uh, Russian volunteers and hit this escape route, if you like, out of Russia into the European Union, which become fairly established. But then there's also another group of people. Um, and it's a choice um, who can take official refugee status from the Russian government. And if they choose this route, and some do, they are helped with their own housing and helped find a job, supposedly, and given a little bit of money, supposedly. Now, uh, the refugees that I spoke to um, who'd come out into Nava, none of them had chosen this route, but they they knew of people who had, and it sounds like there's so many strings attached to it that it, it's difficult to make work they are, the people who chose to become official refugee in russia have to give up their ukrainian citizenship altogether they're sent to the far east russia places near vladivostok i mean several time zones away uh six times away six time zones away from moscow or they're sent to Askohan on the um caspian sea case where it is pretty remote as well and they often end up housed in like wooden barrack-like conditions, uh, given very manual jobs and not much pay. So that, that was sort of one of the first reports that we managed to get out in the West about people from Ukraine who take official refugee status in Russia. Um, and then I was also able to report on the this sort of escape route that this network of um, Russian volunteers have set up. Uh, and again, it was one of the first reports in English media about this network who helped the, who helped the ones who choose, who, who request to get into the European Union and out of Russia, to Mos- first to Moscow and then to St. Petersburg. And then from C- St. Petersburg, it's about two and a half hour drive to the Estonian border, uh, to a town called uh, Ivanogrod. Um, and then you cross a bridge and then you're into Estonia proper. And it's this network of volunteers that I was interested in finding out more about. When I was in Narva, um, there's a there's a refuge there where a lot of the Ukrainian refugees, it's their first port of call. It's, a, it's, a, it's an old sort of, you know, crumbling, 
business center hasn't really been used for a while. It's sort of pre-Soviet era. And, and, and Nova, sorry, to put Nova into context a bit, it's a Stalin, Estonia used to be part of the former Soviet Union. Um, and Narva had been destroyed in the Second World War by the Red Army. They rebuilt it. It looks like a Soviet town. If you know the um, former Soviet Union, it's this classic grid system, Stalin blocks, etc. 90% of the people there speak Russian, um, that sort of thing. So it, it's different from Estonia proper. And there's this building near the train station and the... Um, the bus station used as a refuge centre where the uh, refugees come for their first night inside the European Union uh, once they leave Russia. Um, and it's staffed by, you know, a spillover of this volunteer network, often by Russians who are anti-war and fled Russia themselves six weeks, two months earlier. And out of a feeling of guilt and personal responsibility, they're manning this refuge and helping these people these Ukrainians who have been displaced and their lives completely ruined in, in Mariupol. Um, and it just so happened when I was there, one of the evenings I was hanging out there, most of the refugees turn up in the evening because um, especially the men on the Russian side of this uh, border crossing, they get heavily interviewed by FSB officers. FSB is the Russian uh, Secret Service, I suppose you could call it. And... Um, the men especially get heavily interviewed, you know, for several hours. Again, the Russians are looking for anyone who may have links to the Ukrainian military, that sort of thing. So generally, it takes until late afternoon, early evening for the Ukrainian refugees to turn up. And I was hanging around there about seven o'clock one evening, trying to talk to people, you know, not, not be too intrusive because it's not the way I want to do things. Um, and then in walked this, this young guy turned out to be called Vlad uh, from Mariupol, 20, 21 years old um, and he'd been separated from his girlfriend at this filtration camp in um, Donetsk about two months earlier he'd been kept behind and he, he, his arm was covered in one of these uh, tattoos and he, he'd just been given a grilling at the border zone and with him was this uh, I mean, the, the, the Russian border guards eventually led him over after four, four or five hours interrogation um, but with him was this wonderful Russian woman who was really bubbly Yelena uh, vivacious woman and she had a Finnish residency card which allowed her to cross into Estonia it's, it's basically a closed border at the moment except if you've got an Estonian passport or an EU passport um, out of that, but she had this finished residency card, so she was able to help Vlad get over the border, sort of thing. And then she was going back into Russia. She's a Russian passport holder to be, you know, do this whole thing, and she was part of this network. And she was able to give me a really uh, interesting insight into how this network operates and and how many people there are and and what motivates them. So just to ask um, now these refugees have made it to Estonia, made it to the EU. Did they tell you much about what their plans are for the future? Are they going to stay there? Are they going to move around? What are they thinking? So um, <clears throat> all the ones I spoke to on that trip to Narva, they all had a final destination in mind somewhere in Europe. N none were heading to the UK. Um, we've made it difficult. Uh, most were heading to Germany. Vlad himself, his girlfriend had made it to Malmo, so he was heading over there in Sweden. Some was in going to Croatia, France. None had plans at that stage to head back to Ukraine. They actually had nothing to go back to. If, you, if you're from Mariupol, you, you really have nothing to go back to. The same with the people from Kharkiv. But they were all moving on from Narva the next day. Narva was just a waypoint in their, in their journey. It was their first step inside the European Union. Once inside the EU, they could travel around freely, well, in the Schengen area. Um, some were heading on to Tallinn and then on to uh, the capital of Estonia and then to, on, on, on elsewhere. When I got back to Tallinn, uh, I, I followed my story from, uh, from Narva. And when I got back to Tallinn, uh, I did some more reading around. And it turns out that a lot of them have stuck around in Estonia. And there's a great big cruise ship um, docked off um, the port in Tallinn and it's full of refugees it's been given over to 
So it's going to be interesting to see how that develops uh, and how that, I mean, Estonia is a very small country. It's got about 1.3 million people. There are a lot of pro-Russia sentiment there. Uh, when I say a lot, I mean, I I spoke to, I found a bar on Sunday evening and it was full of Russian speakers and half of them were supporting Putin's war in Ukraine and half weren't. Uh, so it's going to be very interesting to see the rub down and the shakeout with the refugees in Estonia and the complications that Estonia has right on the eastern border of NATO's eastern border of Russia. James, can I just ask you a question while you're on? Uh, great to have you. Thanks for um, thanks for dialing in. Um, you, you said that the the men were separated from from families when they when they were taken into either the, the Russian separatist areas in Ukraine or Russia proper. Um, if they then get through those interrogations and aren't, aren't arrested for former affiliations and what have you, at, w- at what point are the, the families reunited or, or are, are they not? And um, and the, the network you talk about, the, the Russian network to get these people out and, and back to, to, well, somewhere else, um, the, the volunteers in that organisation, why, why have they chosen to stay? Why have they, what was their motivation for staying rather than leaving themselves? Uh, yeah, good question, Storm. Um, the uh, the families are generally reunited at these temporary combination points. So that's the stage after they leave Donetsk, which is the rebel-held area of Ukraine. Uh, they then are, are told uh, to go to a certain temporary combination point in, in one of the towns or cities around Russia. And it's at that point that they can, you know, they said, oh, your family's at this at this." temporary coordination point, go and rejoin your family. But they might be like two weeks behind or whatever. In the case of Vlad, his girlfriend had, you know, these temporary coordination points are not particularly comfortable. Fine, if you need to wait for a husband or, or boyfriend, great, you can stay there and, 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 and wait for him. In the case of Vlad, his girlfriend had just moved on to Malmo and told him uh, where she was going. As I said, the, the Ukrainians do have agency. They, they, they are free to come and go once they get past the filtration points. Um, it's quite important, I think, for the Russian government to give that impression. Like I said, they can choose to become, take an official refugee status, but that, that comes with a lot of strings attached. They can stay at the temporary accommodation point for quite a long time if they want to, or they can uh, go and stay with a relative in, in, in Russia, or they can get into this um, network of volunteers and get out of Russia through Narva, mainly through Narva. Um, uh, with the network of volunteers, which is incredibly interesting, and, and it's really, I can't stress how difficult it is to get insight into Russia these days. I've, I've been working in, in the sort of virtual Moscow bureau of Natalia since the war started, basically tasked with trying to work out what's going on in Russia. And, and remotely, this is incredibly difficult. It's difficult enough, difficult enough when you're living there. Um, so y- Yelena was uh, one of the first people, I think, that had worked in this Russian network inside Russia and had been able to speak to Western journalists, i.e. me, in, in Narva. And she showed me this Telegram channel uh, which all, through which the, um, this network of volunteers is coordinated through. And there's about 5,000 of them in St. Petersburg about 3,000 in Moscow, and she said there's several hundred in all the other cities around Russia. So it's, 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 it's a big network. Um, she said they're very strict on the Telegram channels. Not, there's absolutely no talk of politics. And anyone who's got um, an oppositionist profile in Russia, which is a very difficult thing to have, is not allowed on the Telegram channels and is, is not allowed as part of this network of volunteers helping Ukrainian refugees, because if they did, that might compromise the whole network. Um, and the main motivation is, I mean, they're, they're, they're giving the volunteers their own money, they're giving them their own clothes, because the, uh, the refugees from Mariupol, they turn up with nothing. They, you know, they just have the clothes that they've, you know, off the back and that they fled with and, and a few suitcases. You see this when they, they turn up in, in Nova. Um, and they have no access to money either. They're, their bank accounts don't work in Russia um, because Russia's now out of the swift international banking system. They have no access to cash. Um, so 
one of the main things volunteers do is buy the buy their railway tickets. One family I spoke to, Maddie uh, in in, in Narva, um had escaped from Mariupol in their own in their car. They they run the gauntlet. They left their basement, and gone right. Let's get out of here. This is I think they fled uh, sort of mid March time. It's a terrifying. The bo- you know bombs going off all around the artillery shots, etc. They managed to drive out. They got to uh, Russia, and then they sold their car. Not uh, not as a car because they said no one wants a car of Ukrainian number plates from Russia now, but for spare parts. And they scraped together like a thousand dollars, and that got them through. But mostly, were nothing. So they're reliant on volunteers to buy them tickets, to give them clothes. The volunteers themselves are motivated by by a sense of real guilt about what their country's done to to their neighbour, um, and uh, a sort of a human desire to help. A lot of people did flee Russia. Um, at the beginning of March, that was mainly driven by a fear that Putin was going to order a mobilization, mass mobilization of, of men, um, and also a desire not to live in, in an authoritarian country where dissent is literally banned. But the people who did stay, and I do know middle class people in Russia who did stay, um, they tried to make it work for them as it is. And I think, talking to Yelena, uh, this network of volunteers and speaking to other volunteers on the telephone, this is a way for them to sort of rationalize their life inside authoritarian Russia, if you see what I mean. Um, and it gives them a sense of being useful in, the, in this terrible scenario and, 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 and a way of dealing with their own shit. So just a final question from me, James. Um, so just to be really clear, the, you, you mentioned how they, they're very careful not to discuss politics. They won't invite anybody into this Telegram channel um, who, who, who's, who's an opposition politician or activist or anything. So, so they are doing everything within, within the law. And the only way they, they are able to sort of carry on and not be rolled up by the FSB is, is to avoid all that. that is, is that fair? So, so they, they don't talk politics. They just have to keep everything as, 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 as legal as possible. Yeah, exactly. So they they absolutely don't talk politics, which is 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 basically uh, the Senate's basically banned. They absolutely don't talk about the war because that, that literally is banned. Um, and the way they organise themselves is pseudo open but pseudo closed. Like they they don't talk to other people about it, and and they accept that. Uh, and and the Russian state is such a nefarious thing being and so fully contradictions there's always a way of getting something done in the former Soviet Union and both sides know this so the security services know this and the, and the volunteers know this and there's always a line to tread so they're trying to make a balance and the security services are trying to watch them to make sure they don't go over that balance uh, they, they don't go over that line and if if they can find themselves to buying tickets for a Ukrainian or giving them some uh, clothes, or in the case of Yelena, giving them a lift to the border and getting them over the border, they, they haven't crossed that line. Uh, particularly, there's nothing illegal in that. That's just, you know, buying a train ticket or giving someone a lift. Um, but if they start briefing Western journalists on the telephone from St. Petersburg or Moscow, etc., about how terrible the Russian government is and how the volunteers are sort of uh, sort of um, starting to gather politically against the government, then that is absolutely uh, you know a, a bad thing to do, and they will get visited by security services and terrible things that might happen. So it's about getting that balance right. I was lucky that Yelena. Uh, so. Uh, we, we we did, and I and I did speak to um, several a- a- activists. Is the wrong word? Volunteers inside Russia about this. Now they were all very coy about talking to me from inside Russia. There was a little bit of this, you know, passed around a bit, and they said, "Well, we do a little bit of that, a little bit of this." But they were very unspecific. But it was only because Yelena was standing in Estonia uh, and talking to me face to face that we were able to really discuss their work, sort of thing. It does sound fascinating. As you're speaking there, James, it was just echoing for me the various books and 
bits and pieces I've learned about the Special Operations Executive in the Second World War. This was this was set up um, to to keep the fight going when basically when when Britain had been shoved off the mainland mainland Europe, um, and the SOE was was these small cells, um, native speakers who could go into various countries, mainly mainly France and and sort of the European theatre, but it was was in the Eastern theatre as well, to to raise local. Um, militia it wasn't just an intelligence gathering organization it was also it was there to to conduct sabotage and what have you so i'm not suggesting this group are getting anywhere near that but just the basic cellular structure whereby uh, each network was a very small number of individuals um so that if anybody was compromised that um and they were interrogated or tortured they wouldn't they wouldn't give up any, you know too many other people in in other networks and also if they were infiltrated they couldn't be uh, they couldn't be discovered and it's just there's there's real parallels there i'm surprised you i'm amazed you got you got as much out of them as you as you did because these these things from what little I know, it's sort of live, live or die on their on their internal security. And if anyone's interested in the SOE, I suggest you go and read MRD Foot's book about uh, historian MRD Foot. Very book about the Special Operations Executive. Absolutely fascinating stuff. And this, it'd be really interesting to see how this group develops um, throughout this war and and whether or not it. These are the euphoric early days, and they're talking to journalists, and you know that that's great. But yeah, it's. it's uh, it's also a little bit. It doesn't come without its dangers, and I just, I just wonder if they are, if these are the early days, and they're going to settle down. They're going to sort of learn from their own mistakes and and from their own successes, and and evolve into some kind of cellular cellular structure. Um, this network, no, it'd be really interesting. We we'll have to have to tie up with you uh, as things develop. I, th- I, th- I think that's, uh, you know, I think that is that is interesting. I think, but I think it's really important to uh, distinguish between this network of volunteers. Who are really trying to stay away from um, giving the impression that they're opposition activists? They are. They they, they may be motivated by uh, shame and, and 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 anti-war feelings, but they're they're not trying to to push it too hard. And 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 then they are using semi-open telegram channels, etc. And. Um, sort of more more sort of cell like groups of genuine opposition activists who are trying to do that sort of thing. We we have done reports about um, you know uh, recruitment military recruitment centres in Russia being um, firebombed in Molokov cocktails etc. And, and and railway lines being sabotaged. And that is very much the sort of uh, is, is exactly what you're talking about. These sort of hard, hardcore activists who are, who are, who are very, who, who, are, who are trying to change the course of, of, of the war. You see what I mean, the volunteers are just trying to get the refugees out at this point. James, one tiny question from me: do, Does the organisation have a name? What do they call themselves? It's almost like the sort of Underground Railroad or something. Um, no, I think they just call volunteers. I, th- I, th- I think it's um, if, if they do have a name, I don't know what it is. Well, thank you so much for joining this call and, and, and sharing your reporting with us, James. Is there anything you'd want our listeners to understand or know um, before we move on to hearing what Dom learned from the Estonian Prime Minister? Um, no, I think I think that's all really. I mean, ab- ab- about the uh, the network of volunteers and and the uh, the refugees themselves, it's all in my online story um, did another story in today's paper about um, the other side of the coin which, which I'll give you 20 seconds of about the passionately pro-war pro-Putin um, group in Russia who are crowdfunding kit for their military their soldiers on the front line and you know this group full of Zeds you know the, the insignia of the pro-war uh, lot are buying, they're spending their own money buying drones, uh, telescopic sites, boots, et cetera, et cetera. So Russia really is full of, as we all know, contradictions and, and different parties. Well, thank you very much, James Kilner. And please feel free to stay and listen and and, and join back in the chat when, when you'd like. Um, Dom Nichols, can I move to you? You spoke to the Estonian Prime Minister earlier. What did she have to say? Well, she had to say an awful lot, and I haven't got time to, to cover it all here. I'll try and uh, um, talk about it at the correct times over the next few days. But just just to take up the point there that James uh, mentioned about the, the deportation, she was very clear on this. Um, and she talked about her own experience of her mother um, 
Prime Minister's mother was deported as a six-year-old baby to Siberia in 1949. And she said... Um, well, she was talking in, in the context of, of calls for ceasefire and Macron's comments about um, shouldn't humiliate Putin, what have you. And she said, I'm going to read the whole quote because it just it speaks for it. I don't need to try and interpret for you. But, but she said, I'm very worried about the premature calls for ceasefire or, or peace calls because it doesn't mean that if there is a peace, the atrocities will end for those territories that are occupied. And I speak from experience of my own country. We had peace after the Second World War. It didn't mean that the atrocities stopped. The deportation started, only started then. My own mother was deported as a six-year-old, six-month-old baby to Siberia in 1949. All of this happened in the occupied territories while the West lived in the illusion that there was peace and everything is fine. Everything is fine. There were mass killings, there was torture, there were deportations. And she said, if there is premature peace or a premature ceasefire, the aggression will return and the atrocities will not stop. Stop. God, I'm mangling my words today. I'm sorry. We've already made the mistake three times if you think about Georgia, Donbass and Crimea and we cannot make this mistake again. So she was really, really clear that, that, that this is any, any early peace, early calls for peace is, um, is a misnomer. And, and actually the, the embassy um, spokesperson that, that they helped us there said that her grandfather was, uh, was deported as a 15-year-old boy to Russia during the war and he managed actually to escape and, and come back. But I got the impression and we were... She was off to see Boris Johnson and, and Ben Wallace, what have you, so we, we didn't have a chance to, to really develop it. But I, I got the impression, and I'd love to hear from our Estonian listeners um, and anyone with more, more uh, experience and knowledge on this than me, which is basically anybody listening. Um, I didn't realise that this, the deportations during and after the Second World War, when, when Estonia was part of the Soviet Union, was such a huge cultural issue um I, I i was aware of it but i didn't i didn't know it it was so such a formative experience and i would i would like to learn more about that um i think i think we should do and i think and the prime minister was making the point that that, that there's a lot of um a lot being taken for taken for granted by others in the west and and, and nato and the eu and um she was she was critical of macron and his I'm mildly critical, you know, not not within the bounds of he. I've got a great story here, a great scoop, but you know, she was just saying she she thought it wasn't wasn't great language to be using, and and just thought the whole concept of coming at too early a piece. I know that sounds horrific because we want we want the fighting to stop, but 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 she made the point that President Zelensky said that that if um, um, if Russia stops the fighting, then there's peace. If Ukraine stops fighting, then there's no more Ukraine. So she was saying that you've got to this has to be handled correctly, and and. Uh, she said that her worry of, of Macron talking to Putin um, was that Russia would give the feeling that they are winning some people over and they will forgive us all. That's a quote, winning some people over and they'll forgive us all. Um, she said that's classic negotiation tactics of what they're, what they're doing. It's very, very worrying. Um, and that, that at the moment, these, these comments and these, these efforts are, are just misguided. They are, they are leaving the West in one way and being received in Russia in quite another. And she was suggesting that, that Putin's taking sucker from some big hitters in the West. And she mentioned Macron by name, but as I say, it wasn't, it wasn't a big political dig. She wasn't that daft. Um, but she was, she was just making the point that, that there were some big, big voices making some calls, possibly not realising the historical um, interpretation or the way they're going to be received in in Russia, and I thought that was um, that was very 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 interesting. So you're about to come in there. Oh no, not at all. Um, were you about to carry on? Well, yeah. So, so oh, please, please. moving on from there, she was saying that, that that you know it's too premature now to talk about a ceasefire. She said we have to isolate Russia politically, economically, and we have to be prepared for the long war. And I said, I asked her. I said, right, well. well who do you think or how many are, are, are not prepared for this long war? Uh, and she, just scribbling my notes, looking at my notes here. She, she said that it's it's all down to, she wasn't going to name names. She said she wasn't going to name names, but straight after, straight after the context about Macron and what have you. She said we all have different historical perspectives and, uh, and we can only speak about our own experiences. But she said, this is a quote, our worry is that the West uh, was doing well in the 50 years, this is after the Second World War, the West was doing well in the 50 years where we were occupied and you were living well on your side of the wall. Uh, as the experience is not there, we have to be very vocal about what will come. So she's saying that, that you know, the West, we just don't have this experience of being occupied and the deportations. Um, and she said that at the, 
uh, let me get the figures right. Let me get the figures right, just so I'm not totally, you know, bluffing you. Um, in 1922, the Russian minority in Estonia was 3.2%. They deported a load of Estonians and imported Russians to the, the country of Estonia. So by the end of the Soviet occupation, as she called it, the Russian minority was over 30%. And she said, this is all happening now in Ukraine. And that's why she, she you know, we are very worried, she said. So, I mean, the numbers, are, th- those are staggering figures, 3.2 to, to 30% through these, this system of deportations. Um, and exactly as James has been saying, you know, that, that we're, we're seeing that now. A lot of Ukrainians have great family ties to Russia. So many, many will stay. Uh, so th- this is, this is, if not history repeating itself, then certainly you know the, the classics sort of echo echo through time. But she was very very vocal about the West needs to get itself sorted out. Um, she was talking also about NATO summit uh, the end of June twenty eighth to the thirtieth of June in in Madrid. This will be the big summit where it's almost a certainty that Finland and Sweden will be will be given the thumbs up to join. A bit of you know wrangling with Turkey to to happen between now and then, but yeah, that's that's going to happen. But she said this is also the the, the Madrid summit will also be the moment when um, when NATO needs to move from a tripwire concept to a forward defence concept. And what she was saying was that it's all very well NATO having the the um, enhanced forward presence mission, so across the Baltic states and actually now down into the Black Sea states as well. So an increased number of troops, for example, Britain has a battle group about seven hundred people in Estonia at all at all times now. And that is a tripwire. So it's basically reinforcing Article five, NATO's Article five, saying to Russia, you know, you step o- step over here, you know, it's not just a, a treaty violation, but you know, you you've then got British soldiers as well as Estonians and there's Americans and, and French and uh, all other countries have contributed in some degree. And she's saying that's fine, but a tripwire is a, a tripwire goes off when when the aggressor arrives, you know, and she said we don't want that. So she's talking about this idea that's that's coming to the fore in NATO of having a forward defence concept, i.e., basically rearming and 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 going hard, putting a really a really uh, firm presence along the eastern border of NATO, um, and also having having it backed up in all sorts of um, exercises and policy obligations, and a very obvious an overt presence, such that should anything happen, should should Russia should Putin try chances luck against a NATO country? There'll be a very swift and uh, overwhelming and unequivocal response. But yeah, just to finish off, she would like I say she was very very firm that that now's now's not the time to lean back or take the foot off uh, take the foot off the accelerator regarding Ukraine and uh, uh, also weapons supplies. As I said, she she said that she believes. Russia trying to frame the issue of weapons delivery as uh, as escalatory and, and provocative. She said this is a trap. Ukraine's done nothing to cause a situation. She said there should be no efforts at all to try and um, to look for off ramps or to save face for Putin. She said he can save his own face. He's invaded another country. He can save his face by by turning around. She said I don't really like the calls that Putin's in a corner. He's not in a corner. Or if he is in a corner, it's of his own making. He can very well go back to his own country, uh, whereas Ukrainians have nowhere to go. It's their home. So she's you know, very, very firm on this. And uh, and just reiterated, just at the end, she was saying, what is our neighbour's problem today uh, is our problem tomorrow. If our neighbour's house is on fire, then we should all be concentrating on putting out that fire rather than saying, aren't we glad that the fire is not here? So she's in now. Hopefully she's seen Ben Wallace. Hopefully she's seen, seen Boris Johnson and... Uh, yeah, very, very, very fulsome support for Ukraine and uh, an, an even tougher Western response coming from the Prime Minister of Estonia. Well, thanks for that, Dom. That sounds fascinating. Look forward to um, reading that soon. Um, time is marching on, so I've just got to ask both of you, Dom and James, for your final thoughts. What should our listeners be looking for over the next few days? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, well... I think uh, I think the Estonia government thing's important to look out for. Um, as far as Ukraine and and, and uh, Russia is concerned, we did a, a nice little story published in today's newspaper about Lavrov having problems flying to Serbia, um, the uh, neighbouring countries of Serbia, blocked his airspace, which has kind of humiliated him. He's a, travel-loving, long-standing foreign minister for Russia. So that would frustrate him. Uh, and obviously we did a story as well yesterday about this uh, new arms, these, these new missiles that Britain is now sending to Ukraine along with the US. 
have a range of about 50 or 60 miles. Putin said yesterday that he would strike new targets, in quotation marks, if these missiles are delivered. Uh, Don will have much more information on, on than me on when 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 these would be delivered, but uh, but I'd imagine now is very much something to look out for. Yeah, that'd be my my final thought there. I mean, the the, the old phrase is better late than never. So, well, you know, really, in in terms of Ukraine, we're about to have that properly tested because the these multiple launch rocket systems that, as James says, have about about a, an 80 k range. Um, you know, if they'd been there now for this fight in the Donbass, they, they you can never say with any great certainty with war, but they they would they would have had a big effect, um, I think, and um, and whether or not the war as it is at the moment is going to be in the position, and it does seem to be calcifying to a certain degree. The lines aren't changing much. There are mini counteroffensive or counterattacks, but no, no great push. Um, if it if the lines are where they are today in a few months time then these weapons might have an effect but it's, it's going to take a few weeks for the for the ukrainian troops to be trained on them britain said that we, we're going to train ukrainian troops in britain on the mlrs uh but it's going to take weeks before they are operating in ukraine and i i just i just hope that it's not too late so ukraine has been very clear about about what they want they've been very very thankful for anything that they've been receiving but they've been clear for weeks now and this shouldn't have taken anyone by surprise about they were after long-range artillery to push the russian artillery back um so that firstly they can't smash up civilian areas and kill a huge amount of people but also then the russians armor and infantry cannot operate under this blanket of of artillery and they've shown themselves very vulnerable to the ukrainian anti-tank teams and infantry tactics so if if these things had been there now they, they could have had an had an effect whether they'll be in a position, whether the war will be in a position for them to have such a significant effect in a few weeks' time, and that's being generous, probably a few months' time, when they are when they are there and operating, um, I hope so, and I, and I hope we don't come to live live to regret the phrase "better late than never." Last week, I spoke to Nasta Nasko, a 23-year-old Belarusian who's mobilised a group of volunteers who've raised almost six hundred thousand pounds. That's over $700,000 to our American listeners for the Ukrainian army and other charity groups. The volunteers call themselves Terror-only fans, and their tactic for encouraging donations is a little unorthodox. Here's my conversation with Nasta, and just a note from me that she uses some language that some listeners might find offensive. Well, Nasta, thank you so much for your time and thank you for talking to us. Could you give us a sense of your life before the war? Where are you from and what, what did you do? Uh, originally, I'm from Belarus, but uh, I moved to Ukraine three years ago because of job offer. And uh, these three years I lived in Kiev, I work in Kiev, I had friends in Kiev, I even married in Kiev, so my life was home in Ukraine. Uh, I was working, uh, and I'm still working at uh, We Play Esports. Uh, it's a tournament and organization of uh, esports events. And uh, yeah, I had really good life uh, until the war. So let's 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 talk about the war. What happened in the first week? How did you react? How did your life change? To be honest, uh, I'm very lucky because I went to Croatia for vacation. Uh, I think at 18th February, and I woke up in Zagreb when the war had been started. Uh, I was uh, really afraid because I didn't know what should I do. There were no planes, no trains to Ukraine. I couldn't return to the country. Uh, as I remember, uh, at the first day, uh, Belarusian and Russian people wasn't allowed uh, to come uh, to Ukraine, even permanent residents uh, as, like me, for example. Uh, so I decided uh, firstly to stay in Croatia and uh, started to help uh, people as a volunteer because I had uh, not huge but I think big audience in Twitter. That's why I tried uh, to find, for example, cars from Kiev for more safe cities. I tried to, to collect money for our army, for volunteers, for people that uh, lost their jobs and etc. Then uh, I um, thought that uh, my mom is Polish, 
and my friend uh, from Ukraine could uh, brought my pets. I had a dog and a cat to Poland. Uh, that's why now, I, now I'm staying in uh, Poland and waiting uh, when the war will be ended. So you're on vacation. You started off by helping out as much as you could in Croatia. You're now in Poland. So let's talk about Teroni fans. Could you explain very basically what it is? And then, then we can ask, how did you come up with the idea? Where, where does this come from? Uh, yeah, sure. As I said, uh, I had audience in Twitter and I tried uh, to help people by my audience. Uh, I saw the message that tweet uh, from stranger. I even didn't know this person. Uh, he wanted to escape from Kharkov. Uh, because it was very attacked by a Russian army. Uh, and I made a tweet uh, that I'm looking for a car for this person. There were a lot of retweets, a lot of likes, a lot of replies, but no car. Uh, that's why I thought that it uh, would be great to up tweet in uh, feed and uh, just uh, wrote uh, that I will send my nude photo uh, for the person who will find the car for this uh, person. To be honest, it's really funny. The car uh, have been founded uh, in five minutes, I oh, think. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So he, so he got out. He got out of Kharkiv. Yeah. And, uh, and so then you realized you were onto something, that that, that worked. To be honest, uh, when I woke up uh, next morning, I got about 80 messages from my followers, like, uh, oh, we couldn't help uh, you with car, but we can send uh, you money for your nude photo. <laughs> I had uh, work and I have salary. That's why I don't need uh, money from Ukrainian people that have stayed in Ukraine. And I said, uh, I will send you this photo, but donate to army. And uh, I think in three days I got more than uh, 300 requests <laughs> for this new photo from different people uh, for donation for the army. And then me and my friend that, uh, as I said, brought my animals to Poland, we realized that we can earn money for army directly. We didn't uh, take uh, any money for our own cards, bills and etc. We realized that it's a good idea. If uh, people like it, why not? And uh, we created this Terran Defense and uh, people started uh, to donate, to write us, uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, Terrain Defense, it's a game of the words, uh, like uh, territorial defense and only fans. We don't use only fans, uh, but uh, we call us uh, a nude army of Ukraine. That's why we choose- The nude army of Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. And how many How many are now in your, in your nude army then? Uh, oh, as I remember, we have uh, 35 people, uh, 30 from, them are women and five of them are men and we have uh, 10 total anonymous uh, people that just sent us uh, their nude photos and uh, say yeah you can use it you can send it to other people if it helps ukraine why not so you're a twitch gamer so you do competitive gaming what are the backgrounds of the of the other people in this in this group and how do you guys know each other was it all through twitter was it social media uh no 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 i didn't know these people I just uh, knew my friend that is uh, living with me. She's also nice to me. Uh, and um, people just follow the hashtag around the fans uh, in Twitter and uh, thought, oh, uh, it's really great idea. I can help also. They started to, to write me. And when uh, we're more than 30 people, uh, I thought uh, that we need to uh, gather together and uh, create a chat where we can collect uh, screenshots of payment to Ukrainian army and uh, that's how it started. So what kind of groups are you raising money for? So it's the army, it's some charities, could you give us a, an idea? Uh, yeah, we uh, raised uh, money, as I said, for army, for volunteers, for local uh, territorial defense, for example, in Vinnytsia. In first days, we tried to send money to Azov in Mariupol, but uh, as you know, it was uh, kind of difficult. And also we helped uh, Ukrainian zoos by buying tickets to the zoos uh, to save animals. And uh, as I remember, we donated to some uh, animal shelters. I'm really keen on animals. So I, I appreciate animals. That's why I couldn't uh, left them with help. And how much money have you raised so far now for all the different organizations? As I remember, more than uh, six, $600,000. $600,000? Yeah. 
worth of donations raised from nude pictures from from your nude army yeah yeah yeah. Uh, it started uh, at the 8th of march for, uh, in international women day uh, we wrote uh, that it will be the best gift the victory of ukraine so you can uh, donate money and it will be the best gift for us in this women day have you encountered any criticism or, or reaction you know so some people might say it's a kind of form of exploitation you know you shouldn't be put in a position where you have to share photos of yourself like this to raise money how do you respond to that to be honest i uh, hadn't got a lot of negative comments uh, about maybe 10 and uh, all of them were from russians unfortunately uh, but uh, i think that uh, people firstly uh, laugh uh, from it and uh, then they understand that it's uh, it raised a lot of money and they started to respect us and don't think that we are like kind of horse or <laughs> only fans girls uh, they understand that we're doing right and we're helping uh, our country to be honest it's even not my country it's not my hometown uh, but uh, i want to live uh, here after the war ends uh, and uh, it's my main aim right now to collect as much money uh, as we can uh, to protect ukraine from russian army so when you think of all the money that you've raised like what kind of emotion do you, do you feel proud of it do you feel empowered like this is your way of making a difference firstly i was a little bit ashamed because i have never ever have never posted uh, nude photos or i didn't even get only fans i just stream on twitch and I was a little bit ashamed because I was afraid that uh, people should uh, talk something bad about me. But then I understand uh, that it's a really good and big deal. And I was very proud. Even my employer said that it's a very uh, good um, activity, very good uh, foundation, I can say. And uh, it makes me really proud. And also I'm very proud that people in Ukraine gather uh, different uh, ways uh, and support each other. It's much better uh, than all this money that, we've, that we have collected. And what kind of reaction have you got from the Ukrainian armed forces or the, the people that you're helping? Uh, oh, uh, a lot of uh, uh, people that are in army right now, they send us uh, videos uh, with words of thanks. They uh, even recorded us ukrainian songs ukrainian poems uh, to support us to make us more happy and they usually send us um, reports uh, what uh, did they buy because of this money and uh, it's it's the best uh, words of thanks i think so just just on that what what kind of things are they buying can you can you say you know we send this many nude photos and, and they bought this equipment what what are the what are the armed forces buying with your money uh, body armors, for example, because uh, there were deficits uh, of uh, uh, this uh, in very hot spots. Mm. Also, uh, they buy food, they buy uh, medicaments. I'm really not good at army stuff, but uh, I, as I remember, they buy copters to think uh, enemies. Like drones? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, sorry. Oh, wow, okay. And um, uh, thermal images. So thermal imaging cameras, drones, is there anything offensive? Are, are they buying um, guns or ammunition? Or is it so it's body armor, drones? I don't think that uh, they could uh, buy guns because it's not allowed it in Ukraine. But we donate a lot of money to the most well-known uh, foundation in Ukraine, Back Alive. And uh, they uh, buy guns, they buy all this stuff uh, from Europe and uh, different countries. It's uh, not, uh, we didn't know about it, but uh, we understand that uh, they did it. So this this project sort of started out as a bit of a joke and it's really, I mean, it's, it's continued and it's got incredibly big and you've said over $600,000 have been raised for all these different foundations. What's the future for you now? Where does, where does this go? And when, when does this stop? Uh, it will be stopped when uh, Putin will die. <laughs> and uh, firstly, yeah, it was a joke. But right now I understand that it's a really good uh, and a little bit creative project. But um, I hope uh, that 
it will be stopped uh, in the last day of the war because we wouldn't have a need to donate money for army and volunteers when the peace will come. Is there anything we haven't spoken about or anything that you want to say, any any message to the listeners? Because I'm aware that quite a few of our listeners probably, this might be the first time they've heard of OnlyFans or heard, heard of the, the kind of stuff you're doing. What, what would you want to tell them? I wanted to say that war uh, is intended, it's continued, uh, and um, I will be really happy if uh, European people donate money directly to army, to volunteers. I I'm I will be really happy if people support Ukraine in these dark times and uh, don't forget that uh, war is continuing right now in the center of the Europe. And also I am really grateful for all European and uh, all the world uh, that support uh, Ukrainian refugees uh, like me, like a lot of other people. We are grateful and we will be happy to see you in Ukraine after the victory. And what's your what does your future look like at the moment in Poland? To be honest, my future is a little bit um, in shade. Uh, I have uh, no idea where should I go because uh, I couldn't allow it to come back to Ukraine right now. I couldn't come back to Belarus because it's still dictator at power <laughs> at government. And uh, I think uh, I will be in prison if I come back uh, to Belarus because uh, I collected a lot of money to army of uh, other country and it will be judged if I come back. That's why I will stay in Poland, try to get permanent uh, residence here because my mom is Polish and I had uh, an opportunity to get it. And uh, then when the war will be ended, I will come back to Ukraine, continue to work uh, for my company and live my best life in Ukraine. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Sophie Coe. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.